You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, May 17th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with nationally recognized scholar on hate crimes and policing, Professor Janine Bell of the IU Maurer School of Law, about a racially motivated shooting in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 people dead. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, WFHB correspondent Abe Shapiro brings you headlines from around the country and around the globe regarding neurodiversity issues. But first, your local headlines. At the Bloomington City Common Council meeting on May 11th, Development Services Manager Jackie Scanlon asked the board to approve technical corrections to the Unified Development Ordinance. Scanlon outlined it what some of the changes would be. So the first change is that for the used multifamily dwelling, um, we are recommending for uh, building floor plate that buildings with um, more than 20 units, that they be allowed a maximum floor plate, so the size of one floor, of 10,000 square feet um, by right. And that um, buildings that utilize either the affordable housing or sustainable incentives shall be allowed to increase to 15,000 square feet. And that if both incentives are used, they be allowed to increase to 30,000 square feet. So um, obviously you'll see tonight a pattern of some of the changes that we're proposing are to increase the um, use of incentives and their impact on development and um, the outcomes that we're seeking. Okay, so the next change that is discussed um, is increasing the separation requirement for the used student housing or dormitory from 300 feet to 900 feet in our two um, our two uh, kind of multifamily residential districts as well as the bulk of our mixed-use districts. Um, So you can see that under 13B um, from 300 to 900 and then adding that that if you choose to use one incentive that only the separation of the two separate lots is required, no longer the separation if they're on one lot, and that if you choose to use two incentives, again, sustainability and affordable housing uh, in those applicable zoning districts, um, that there is no separation requirement. She also explained how the changes would be used to help incentivize both sustainable and affordable development. So again, that is current in the code, um, that if you use one, there is no maximum, and we're proposing to link that sort of kind of intense incentive to using both incentives, affordable and sustainable. Uh, We think that that, uh, with the development we've seen um, since this has been in place, that that would be more appropriate and get us toward uh, more of the outcomes we're kind of looking for. Council member Sue Scambarelli asked if they have received any feedback from developers about the incentives. Scanlon responded. The most feedback we get is real, real-time discussions about buildings, and um, far and away, everyone wants to use the sustainable incentives, uh, and 
don't, doesn't want, don't want to discuss affordable housing incentives. That's pretty much the base. So we do have, you'll recall, a, a project that was done with the affordable housing incentives very early on at third, it's being built right now at third and grant on the north side. Um, and that's great uh, that it that we have not seen that proliferate in our other projects. So with these changes and then ones you'll see later um, on in one of the other ordinances, uh, we are trying to um, make it more likely that a developer will um, explore both options uh, to be able to build the size that they, that they uh, seem to need to make that work. Director of Planning and Transportation, Scott Robinson, added that they are responding to development trends. Uh, thanks for the question. And, you know, I say what the intent of a lot of these are is our approach to keep the UDO relevant. And we're responding to what we're seeing in the development trends from uh, cases that come through our office and feedback. So any direct like, hey, what do you guys think of this? It's more of staff evaluating and trying to align that with our goals with both sustainability and affordability. And so we recognize that. And so that's why uh, many of these changes you see tonight are more of staff's evaluation on types of projects that we're getting in and how do we align that with both uh, the city's comprehensive goals, council's goals on sustainability, affordability, design, and all the things that we uh, strive to do to have a, a you know, quality, well-built urban environment. So with that said, what we've been seeing with the current UDO is the trend is in those conversations with developers, they're not even interested in discussing affordable housing incentives. They're not good enough. Sustainability is great, but maybe they're a little too easy to get. So how are we gonna recalibrate those? And so this is in concert with some stuff you're seeing in chapter four. So what we're seeing now is we'll do sustainability for the trade-offs of how we define student housing to get the incentives in the districts as Jackie explained with the floor plates. But secondly, um, if we could recalibrate that, so what's happening now is it's an either or, we'll just do sustainability and we're not gonna discuss about affordability. What we hope to do with this change is get a win-win, like you can pick to choose sustainability or affordability and you get a little bump of an incentive. But if you do both, you get a big bump. And that's what we're trying to do with these incentives um, that you also see in chapter four is that uh, we hope with that change, they can still do an either or and get a little bit of a bump in the floor plate or the other things that we're looking to do. But if they do both, a win-win, both affordability and sustainability, then I think that's, that's what we're trying to achieve with these. So um, that's just kind of a big picture. The council voted to pass the ordinance changes unanimously. The next meeting will be held on May 18th. At the Bloomington Commission on Sustainability meeting on May 10th, Council Ex Officio member Matt Flaherty shared that the City Council approved a local income tax increase and explained what that means for Bloomington's Climate Action Plan. Final final note, I guess, on the process is that, um, you know, this is all uh, set by state. Uh, I wish we could have progressive taxation, local income taxes. I wish we could uh, approach things a little bit differently from a process perspective and vis-a-vis uh, -vis our relationships with county and, and other town councils. Uh, but the process is what it is. Um, I think it's still, you know, much more in the community's interest to invest in uh, addressing climate preparedness in a way that we wouldn't otherwise be able to. Same thing with transit. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, you know, our city of Indianapolis um, is a good example. A few years back, passed a 0 0.25 uh, 
uh, percent increment increase in, in their local income tax to do a similar type of investment in transit, which has enabled the red line and now the purple line that they're developing. So uh, bus rapid transit up in Indy. Um, and, you know, while, while some folks are obviously naturally uh, <laughs> inclined to oppose tax increases and or sort of default to only the public safety policing sort of traditional core services of cities, again, I think this was the right approach that unanimous support from the city council ultimately. And uh, while the county council wasn't weighing in directly at the same time, I had conversations with, with uh, six of the seven county council members, all of whom agreed there was a need for new revenue on their end as well for uh, Justice Center and similar programmatic reasons, um, although they were a little less suited at this point in time to, to articulate exactly what those costs will be and maybe a little less inclined to engage in the weeds of that process <laughs> with us. Uh, so I just wanted to acknowledge that, you know, there's, of course, the process wasn't without opposition and, and there are some process limitations and, and other constraints that, that, you know, undermine our ability to do exactly what we want to do with those types of things. Commission President Joseph Winia asked how the local income tax is distributed to the city when the local income tax is for the whole county. Flaherty explained that they look at the population numbers to decide the percentage of the income tax they receive. Correct. Yeah, there's a formula breakdown that's based on, um, there's actually different ways to approach it. We opted for a population-based approach, which to me is the most logical for an income tax, which is tied to people and populations, of course. So it's not... It's not actually directly tied to individuals and where the individuals live. Rather, uh, it's like 58% of the population of Monroe County lives in the city of Bloomington. Therefore, we get 58% of the local income tax share. Okay. And similar to other units, um, Steinsville, Ellettsville, and Monroe County government. Next, Assistant Director of Sustainability Lauren Clemens gave a presentation on the Climate Action Plan to inform the new board members what the commission has been working on and what they will be working on moving forward. The next commission meeting will be held on June 14th. Up next, we have the Disability as Ability News Briefing with Abe Shapiro, a segment devoted to the headlines surrounding the disability community. We turn to correspondent Abe Shapiro for more. Good evening, I'm Abe Shapiro, and this is your Disability News Briefing. Paula Goldberg, a national representative renowned for her advocacy on behalf of children with disabilities, died Sunday. She was 79. In 1977, Goldberg co-founded and served as executive director of the Pacer Center, an organization dedicated towards helping parents of children with disabilities connect with each other. In a statement to Minnesota Public Radio, Pacer board member Kathy Graves lamented that, quote, it is a blow. She's not like one in a million. She's like one in 10 million, end quote. Graves went on to call the late Goldberg an extraordinary person and described her passing as a tremendous loss to the disability world. Pacer runs more than 30 programs targeted to parents, students, and professionals working within the disability community. The U.S. Department of Education will update a 45-year-old civil rights law protecting students with disabilities from discrimination. The department this month will begin collecting public comments on what is known as Section 504, which applies to students with physical or mental health needs who might not qualify for special education under the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. 
Special education experts say there's wide variation in how school districts accommodate students' needs in the classroom and that parents are often in the dark about their children's rights under 504. While the world has undergone enormous changes since 1977, the department's Section 504 regulations have remained unaltered, said Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights Catherine E. Lawman. As we observe the 45th anniversary of these important regulations, it is time to start the process of updating them. Just as in 1977, the voices of people with disabilities must be heard and incorporated as we engage in this work. In April of 1977, hundreds of people with disabilities held protests at several of the regional offices of the Department of Education's predecessor, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, demanding that the agency approve the long-delayed 504 regulations, which were signed on May 9th of that same year. The Los Angeles Unified School District voted on a controversial proposal to reshape education for thousands of deaf students on Tuesday. This resolution will create a new deaf and hard-of-hearing education department within the district's special education program. The resolution also places American Sign Language into the district's dual language and bilingual program and makes ASL English bilingual education the district-wide standard for early intervention with deaf and hard-of-hearing students. Supporters say the move addresses the district's urgent need for language equity, while opponents decree it as a violation of parental rights. From the supporters' side, LAUSD board member Jackie Goldberg stated to the Los Angeles Times, quote, This is not a motion to avoid options. This is an opportunity to make sure that everyone gets all options presented which both sides say is currently not the case, end quote. On the opposition side, Los Angeles mayoral candidate Rick Caruso expressed disappointment in the decision and that bilingual instruction is obsolete for the youngest deaf learners who almost universally receive cochlear implants, allowing the majority to listen and speak. On the medical side, experts point out that not every family has the same access to high-quality, well-fitting hearing aids, or to the surgical revisions and training necessary to use such an implant successfully. Nor can families predict ahead of time how well an implant will work, or what degree of hearing the child will retain over time. In a May 10th statement to the LA Times, Tawny Holmes Hillbach, the Language Planning and Policy Council at Gallaudet University, explained, quote, you need a lot of services, and Medicaid doesn't fully cover that. Children under five who got technical devices might still have struggled with acquisition of language. Mattel said this month that it was releasing the first Barbie doll with behind-the-ear hearing aids. The toy maker is also introducing a doll with a prosthetic leg. The offerings are part of the Fashionistas collection, which includes over 175 looks that vary in skin tone, eye color, hair color, texture, disability, and fashion. In a statement to Disability Scoop, one of the nation's largest news organizations dedicated to covering developmental disabilities, Mattel Executive Vice President and Global Head of Barbie Products, Lisa McKnight, said, quote, Barbie wholeheartedly believes in the power of representation, and as the most diverse doll line on the market, we are committed to continuing to introduce dolls featuring a range of skin tones, body types, and disabilities to reflect the diversity kids see in the world around them, end quote. 
A new report published Monday by WHO and UNICEF reveals that more than 2.5 billion people need one or more assistive products, such as wheelchairs, hearing aids, or apps that will support communication and cognition. Yet nearly 1 billion of them are denied access, particularly in low- and middle-income countries, where access can be as low as 3% of the need for these life-changing products. According to WHO, this report notes that the number of people in need of one or more assistive products is likely to rise to 3.5 billion by 2050 due to populations aging and the prevalence of non-communicable diseases rising across the world. The report also highlights the vast gap in access between low- and high-income countries. An analysis in the report of 35 countries reveals that access varies from 3% in poorer nations to 90% in wealthy countries. Affordability is a major barrier to access, the report notes. Around two-thirds of people with assistive products reported out-of-pocket payments for them. Others reported relying on family and friends to financially support their needs. And that's all for your disability news briefing. For WFHB News, I'm Abe Shapiro. Live and learn. In today's feature report, WFHB News Director Cade Young speaks with nationally recognized scholar on hate crimes and policing, Professor Janine Bell of the IU Maurer School of Law, about a racially motivated shooting in Buffalo, New York that left 10 people dead. We turn to Young for more. On Saturday, May 14th, an armed 18-year-old white man killed 10 people and injured three others at a Buffalo, New York grocery store. Almost all of the victims were black. A manifesto written by the shooter who traveled more than three hours to commit these egregious acts reveals the attack was racially motivated. Police are now investigating the shooting as a hate crime. Professor Janine Bell a nationally recognized scholar on the subject of policing and hate crimes at the IU Maurer School of Law, says she's not surprised by the tragic incident. I'm not surprised in part because I'm a hate crime scholar and I've watched incidents happen around the country in recent years. And this is sadly more of what's to come, I feel. In her expert legal opinion, Bell says that the shooting provides a textbook example of what constitutes a hate crime. This is absolutely a hate crime. Hate crimes are crimes motivated by bias on the basis of race, religion, city, sexual orientation, the precise categories, and that means race, etc., are categories. They're not groups. That's something that's quite important. So this is a classic hate crime. And we know this in part because of the defendant's manifesto and live streaming of the event. It's important to note that anyone can be a victim of a hate crime. Hate crime statutes have categories listed. Race, religion, sexual orientation, 
the precise categories vary by statute. And that means that anyone, for instance, who has a race can be victimized by hate crime. And I've seen victims of every background in the more than 25 years I've been studying this. That gives all of us an incentive to try to address this violence. The shooter had visited white supremacist websites prior to the incident and was an adherent to the so-called Great Replacement Theory. According to the National Immigration Forum, the Great Replacement Theory states that, quote, welcoming immigration policies, particularly those impacting non-white immigrants, are part of a plot designed to undermine or replace the political power and culture of white people living in Western countries, end quote. Bell touched on the rise of white supremacy and how these hateful viewpoints have the ability to thrive in today's media landscape. First of all, it's important to note that the Great Replacement Theory is something that's not new. It's a long, you know, old white supremacist approach and view So it's something that's not new. But the current environment with respect to social media, the space for these views has absolutely allowed the views to proliferate and adherence of these extreme views to find each other. Say, you know, with white supremacists in Bloomington, they might not know each other existed, um, and they might have to go to other locations. The internet creates the space for them to find each other, for white supremacists to find each other. Bell speculates that rulings like the not guilty verdict in the Kyle Rittenhouse trial and other dog whistling to white supremacists by elected officials and media personalities have emboldened white supremacists to commit the atrocious acts seen in recent days. Bell explained that this sort of apathy towards white supremacist violence sets a harmful precedent that normalizes hate. I think that the result in the Rittenhouse trial and the not guilty verdict in that context and the dog whistle by politicians and by individuals as part of the media absolutely suggests to extremists that their beliefs are acceptable and that they should go out and continue to express views and do things in keeping with views that are really counter to American ideals of inclusivity, etc. The United States has a long history of white supremacist violence. Bell described the similarities and differences in the form of white supremacy seen today versus white supremacist violence in the days of Emmett Till or other racially motivated killings seen in the past. One big difference is that in the past, mob violence was a huge force, right? Lynchings, for instance, often involved entire communities watching present as black bodies lay swinging from ropes. Now, white supremacists whose organizations may be sued and bankrupted 
by lawsuits, have adopted a lone wolf approach to violence such that they say, listen, this is our ideology, but you are to engage in this behavior on your own. Bell says she's not sure what can be done when it comes to policy or even on a societal level to prevent such horrifying acts from happening in the future. However, she says addressing the issue is the first step in any tangible change moving forward. We don't know whether we can prevent them, but we might spend more time actually addressing them. So the vast majority of law enforcement agencies in the United States do not even investigate hate crime. So the most recent FBI report, more than 80% of law enforcement agencies suggested that not a single hate crime occurred in their jurisdiction. That suggests that they are doing nothing. And that's the way that most community police departments approach hate crime. We can't even talk about ending this sort of violence if we're not even doing very much at all to address it. So that's the start, I think. The Buffalo community continues to mourn in the aftermath of such hate and tragedy that has befallen that community. Bell offered some words of solace for the victims and the community of Buffalo in the wake of the devastation. I think that the community of Buffalo needs to come together and not just the African-American community, but the community as a whole needs to reach out to African-Americans in the community and say, listen, this is not something that we support. And moreover, we will redouble our efforts to address individuals in the community who express these sorts of views before they get to this particular extent. So that, I think, is the way that the community in Buffalo can best respond and recover to the extent they can from an incident like this. For WFHB News, I'm Cade Young. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com.
You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Cade Young. The Disability as Ability News Briefing was produced by Abe Shapiro. Our theme music was provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Engineer and executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Noel Herhusky-Schneider. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Cool Solutions, climate action from the bottom up. Coming up next on WFHB Community Radio. Listening to the WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending new volunteer orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 